Today's reading is Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. It can be found on page, cut it off here, of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephphathah which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The word of the Lord. All right, let us pray. Lord, we pray that we would continue to come to you for healing and in our moments of brokenness, sickness, and fed-upness. As we pray this prayer, many of us seek different kinds of healing. Some seek healing for the renewal of our inner, of our inner life, emotional healing. Others are seeking healing from addiction. Some seek relief from medical issues. And all of us, in one way or another, seek healing for a broken world, one that lacks thoroughgoing justice, and one that seems devoid at times of peace. Whatever our interpretation or need for healing is, we are taking this moment to look at you as the source for our healing in all forms. Lord, as we enter the scripture lesson, help us be genuine with ourselves as we confront the reality that we are more broken than we care to admit. But with you and in your community, we are more loved and accepted than we could ever imagine. Amen. All right, I've got some PowerPoint stuff going on, so great, thank you. And I got a handy-dandy remote. Okay, cool. That was things you forget to communicate before sermon starts. So... I don't know about you guys, but I spend an inordinate amount of time on meme websites like BuzzFeed or, uh, well, what's the other one? Mandatory. Mandatory is like my favorite. And over the last year and a half, they, we, they've had these, this great category of, uh, is that going right? I forgot. It's not like a TV. You don't just click at the screen. They have this great category of uh, memes called nailed it memes, right? Like where... In one photo, you have this really great artistic photo, uh, you know, with with <laughs> with um, you know with with models, good lighting and good timing. And then you get this amateur that takes a photo of a screaming baby in a pumpkin, um, but but really poorly timed, not a good model, no one's happy. And and these are awesome. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, girls that aren't very flexible. Thor, <laughs> yeah, that one might be my favorite, and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to even try to explain this one, <laughs> and th- this, one's it. this one's my favorite, 
So what's great about these photos? <laughs> the the face kills me on her. It's just, it's the worst. So what's great about these photos is、uh, it kind of engages our BS detectors, and by BS I mean bad stuff.、Uh, Nick Zalstra said I was full of bad stuff for leaving, so we're gonna say <laughs> we're gonna say bad bad stuff.、Um, And, it, and it's pretty easy, right? Like we look at this photo, and we clearly know that one is genuine, right? One's done genuinely by an artist, and the other is just some amateur with bad timing, bad skills, and bad equipment. So, but in life, we we use this BS detector often, right? Some of us call it a crap detector. I I like the the BS radar thing because I want to know the bad stuff coming at me. I don't want to. I don't want to deal it. Deal with it when I'm in it. I want to see it coming at me. So I call it my BS radar, and we we employ this every day, or at least every month, or any time we encounter a new thing, right? Because we want to be linked up with good, genuine things that are safe, that are professional, that are awesome. So when we're considering things like schools, when we're considering things like churches, when we're considering communities, when we're considering doctors, we're looking for that, right? We're looking for the genuine thing, the thing that's safe, the thing that's、um, professional, and the thing that works for our benefit. And we're trying to stay away from the counterfeit. We're trying to stay away from the thing that isn't safe, the thing that might be、um, not looking out for our best interests. And that's kind of what our BS detector does. It's it's kind of a serious thing, and we and we use it often. So. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use this nailed it kind of motif throughout the sermon. I, I really want to show what I think Mark is doing in Mark seven thirty-one、uh, through thirty-seven. I think he's actually I think these photos actually crack open some an issue today that we're、um, that we're dealing with when、uh, that he's dealing with in, with his time rather about genuine healers. He's showing Jesus as a genuine healer. And I think he's actually using, in an ancient way, kind of a nailed-it photo to engage his ancient audience's crap detector, their BS radar. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to go through this sermon. We're going to come at it three different angles. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the three markers of a genuine healer, and then we're going to talk about three markers of a counterfeit healer. And then we're going to kind of work up this sort of thing, where we have a nailed-it photo, we have a genuine, and we have a counterfeit. And then we're going to develop. Then we're going to talk about being a healing community, and what that means. So as we kind of jump into that, I'm going to ask you to kind of take like a magic school bus ride with me, if you guys are familiar with that show. And we're actually going to enter into the ancient community and the ancient landscape of the first、uh, readers. Of Mark, or the first hearers of the Gospel of Mark, and kind of see where all this comes alive. So let's start with the counterfeit. So every good story starts with spit, right? Not really. I mean, it's terrible. I'm kind of one of those OCD guys that spit and that that kind of thing just kind of rubs me raw. But it's the first concrete image that comes to my mind when I read this text: is that Jesus heals with spit, and it's gross and it's weird, but he's got my attention. So,、um, 
the funny thing is the ancient audience would have caught on to the same thing, but for different reasons. They would have heard the spit story, and they would have automatically knew this healing. The funny thing is they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have associated it with Jesus. It would have been the first time they heard that Jesus did a spit healing. Who they would have, would have associated it with is Caesar Vespasian, kind of their president of their time. So what's funny about this guy, Caesar Vespasian, is at the time that Mark was writing this gospel, there was this kind of ruthless Caesar that was running around, not as bad as Nero, not as great as Augustus, but, you know, just this, this guy that was around that wasn't that great. He had kind of a Kanye West, like, Kim Kardashian reputation. You know, he was self-aggrandizing and, all, and always signaling towards himself. And the thing is, he got elected into office from being a warrior. You know, he, he went out and had brutal conquests, a lot of bloodshed, but a lot of victory and a lot of land gain. This guy was kind of cool. He, uh, for, for Rome, but once again, kind of a self-grandizing. And as he got into office, things got weird. He started calling himself a divine king. It's not okay. Back then, it was one of those things where it's like, you can become a, a god as long as, like, when you die, you know, kind of in the same way as, like, let's see, the Lion King, you know, like, when the Lion King dies, he goes into the stars and kind of watches the Lion tribe. It's kind of the same thing. When a, when a Caesar dies, he goes into the stars and, you know, watches the Roman citizens. But he didn't want that during his lifetime. He wanted to say, no, recognize me as a god. I'm a god. I'm a god. I'm a god. Oh, and get this, you guys didn't know this, but like 12 years ago, I healed people. I was in, <laughs> and it's kind of like that girlfriend in Canada thing, where he's like, I was in Alexandria, Egypt, and you guys wouldn't believe it, I healed all these people with my spit. Now, that had some kind of magical stuff worked into it, so spit healing was uh, kind of a thing or a means of healing, but it, it was one of those things, he's building a myth and a legend and kind of self-aggrandizing, right? Making himself bigger, trying to make himself appear as God, kind of sarcastically nailing it, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's, he's, not, he's not a God king. And, and that actually became part of his reputation. He was this guy that was kind of a liar and you, can, you, can know if, you didn't know if you could trust him. So there was a lot of historians that kind of wrote about him too. There was Suetonius, uh, Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, not the beer, but the writer. <laughs> One of my favorite beers, by the way. Um, and my favorite writings are, are the writings of Tacitus and, and this guy Cassius Dio. And Cassius makes this really ironic observation at the end of his life. He's there at his, death, at, at his deathbed, kind of catalog, cataloging his life. They want his legend to grow. And he notes this moment of irony in his, in his last breaths. Vespasian says, Ve puto dos fio. Oh, I'm, I think I'm becoming a god. And to be clear, Cassius was suggesting that Vespasian was a fake. He was suggesting that everyone knew it. So what we're going to do just for a minute is I'm going to show you a picture of him. He's, yeah, I mean, doesn't that guy kind of look like a fake? I mean, I don't know. So... We're going to follow kind of the story of a guy named Tacitus who, who writes about his life and, and says some pretty interesting things that actually line up with the gospel of, of Mark in some ways with our story that we just read. So 
one of the funny things is that, uh, or what, the first marker, we're, we're going to go over markers, right? <laughs> so the first markers, the, the elements of the photo that we can tell are fake, that make him a fraud, you know, the bad timing, the bad lighting, the bad models. The first element that signals that is that Vespasian heals in his story, in his history, out of convenience. Tacitus, this other historian that he hired to kind of write about his life, said that Vespasian was waiting at Alexandria for the return of the summer winds at the sea. He was partying in Alexandria and was kind of on a long layover. He wasn't necessarily in Alexandria to heal anybody. He just so happened to be there, and oh my gosh, there's sick people approaching me. So that's the first marker. He is healing out of convenience. It's there. Why not? I can make myself great. The second marker is that he heals out of obligation. And what I mean is Vespasian healed because he had to heal to be called a god. So, so uh, Tacitus writes that many wonders occurred which seemed to point him out as the object of favor of heaven and the partiality of the gods. One of the common people in, in Alexandria who was well known for his blindness threw himself at the emperor's knees. And he implored him with groans to heal his infirmity. I'm going to ask you to remember that word groans, and I'll bring it up later. And this guy, he begged Vespasian to moisten his cheeks and eyes with his spit. Another diseased man, or another man with a diseased hand, went to, went to Vespasian for his counsel, and he prayed and asked for healing. At first, Vespasian ridiculed and repulsed him. So this is a guy that's not doing it for the other person's benefit, right? He's, he's wanting to heal so he can become great. And it's kind of sad that he ridicules and repulses before he actually heals. It's kind of a terrible marker, right? And then the third marker is that he heals for good PR. So Vespasian heals because he wants to be recognized, worshipped, and worshipped as a god-king. Tacitus kind of ends his story on this moment by saying, for the pleasures of the gods, the emperor might be chosen to be the minister of the divine will, and all the glory of the successful healing would be given to the Caesar, while the ridicule and failure would fall on the sufferers. And so Vespasian, supposing that all things were possible to his good fortune, amid intense expectation and multitude of the multitude of the bystanders, accomplished what was required. He's got good news about him now. He now has the gospel of Vespasian. And if, if it isn't clear already, I mean, we're, we're starting to understand that this is sarcastically becoming our nailed-it end of our, of our meme, right? Of our nailed-it meme. And Vespasian really is kind of the equivalent of like today's crappy uh, product being peddled on a late-night infomercial. He's the plan for an addiction-free lifestyle that requires minimum effort and no community support. He offers a no-risk guarantee, but damages our confidence when, dealing, when wanting and wanting to have confidence in real healing. He's a product. He's not a relationship. He's the stuff of shallow PR. 
He's not healing from deep mercy. And he's going to exploit your confidence. He will not love you sacrificially. Kind of bleak, I know. (laughs) But that's kind of Vespasian's story. We kind of see where he lands on this, right? Kind of looks like the screaming baby in a pumpkin. So what, what's the other side of the, of the meme? Well, we got, is this going to go? There we go. We got Jesus. That's the super Middle Eastern picture of Jesus, by the way. Not the, <laughs> not, not the blonde Protestant Jesus, you know, that uh, my grandma had, in our, had a picture of in our dining room or in her dining room. <laughs> I like it. So as we heard Karen read, we were given the picture of the authentic Jesus, right? The genuine Jesus, the genuine healer. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the markers of a genuine healer? And to kind of mirror what's going on with Vespasian, Jesus, in the first mark, he heals despite the convenience. And I I kind of want to show you what I mean here. Is that, uh uh-oh. Hey, there it is. All right. So this is his actual travel in this book. So that first small line from Tyre to sit on, that's not that far, right? But he books it all the way over to Decapolis, which is kind of like driving from here to, I don't know, San Francisco without motorized transportation, and then heads back the other way. So the funny thing about Jesus' travel here is he's not going because it's convenient. There's no actual reason he should be traveling out here other than What most scholars say, it seems like he had compassion for the foreigner. The person that he healed was not Jewish. The person that he went and healed, he must have just known this person needed to be healed. He wasn't there on a layover from a long party in Vegas. Jesus travels. The second marker of a genuine healer is that he enters into the suffering of the man that uh, that is deaf and that is mute. And what I mean by that is he pulls the man aside. And instead of the man sighing, remember the guy groaning at the knees of Emperor Vespasian? He actually sighs for him. Same Greek word. He sighs for him. He enters into his suffering, into his world, and sighs the sigh that that man probably sighed every day of his life over his disability. And then he heals him. In one stark, miraculous moment, he says, Ephaphtha. And the man's ears open and his tongue loosens and his problem isn't a problem anymore. Now, the third mark of a genuine healer is that he's not doing it for good PR. The man is now able to hear the good news of the genuine healer and he's able to share the good news. He can hear and he can talk now. And everyone that was privy his previous illness is now sharing this good news too. The funny thing is that Jesus tells him to stop. He rejects the honor and it's kind of crazy how that happens and you kind of wonder well don't you actually want good PR Jesus? (laughs) Come on. This is, you just did something miraculous. And I guess at this moment, I kind of want to step aside and and kind of explain what's going on with, with that passage and when Jesus does that crazy thing he does when he heals somebody in Mark or performs an exorcism in Mark or does a miracle in Mark or, I don't know, is called Christ, you know? He's, 
there are these amazing, amazing things that happen in the Gospel of Mark. And the, the Gospel writer says something like this. He says, then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. Why the heck does Jesus do that? Well, the funny thing in that culture is there's this kind of honor-shame thing going that we don't totally have today, but we sort of have, where basically honor, people that are honorable do good, they're humble, and they're giving. So you kind of have people on this honor side, and then there's this shame side where people, they hurt, um, they're hurtful, they're self-aggrandizing, and they take instead of give. And Jesus is securely stepping into this honor position by refusing to self-aggrandize, by refusing to really, I don't want to say own up, but I want to say he's acknowledging in all the right ways why he is that, why he is the honorable person. And people are going to share that no matter what. No matter what he says, people are going to share that because they're going to make sure that they know that everyone else knows something of Jesus' honor because he is so honorable. If he went on the other end and said, yeah, I'm the Christ. Yeah, I totally did that. Yeah, you know what? You should worship me for about the next 2,000 years. <laughs> then we may have something wrong, right? Even today, we can kind of see how that honor-shame thing happens. There's an author that I really like. Uh, his name's David Watson. He wrote this great book called uh, Honor Among Christians. And on this point, th- this whole thing where Jesus kind of keeps himself secret, they-, they kind of labeled that secret messiah. That's what it's called. When you see Jesus trying to keep a secret, secret messiah. That's just kind of what they name it. And this guy David Watson writes that Mark's portrayal of Jesus simultaneously shows his ability to provide favors and benefits to others and and his refusal to put himself forward or draw attention to himself as the benefactor. He's not doing it for his benefit. Thereby teaching that the kingdom of God is not about great, it's not about who is great and powerful or highly regarded, but it's about the humble. And we hear this sort of story all the time. Well, or maybe we don't, actually. Maybe we've caught some sound bites about uh, the, the world's best physicians going into third world countries and healing people without monetary compensation or, you know, the claim of media or the basketball player that enters the inner city that he grew up in or his friends grew up in or he knew about and opens a free basketball clinic or camp for disenfranchised youth. His sponsors don't know or her sponsors don't know. In humility, they shirk off the honor of being provided monetary compensation. They shirk off the honor of being acclaimed through media. And they do their services, they do not do their services in a quid quo pro manner. They're not looking for anything for themselves. In a similar way, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus rejects the honor so that the people know that he's not demanding that they fall under his power. It's not the point. Instead, Jesus rejects the acclaim because he does not want to draw attention to his greatness. He's showing us that to be a follower of Christ, we reject the temptation to be viewed as powerful. But instead, we embrace each other by loving one another through humble service. It's pretty powerful stuff. And with all this in mind, getting back to the sermon, back to the, uh, the rejecting good PR thing, Jesus becomes that authentic portion 
of the nailed-up photo, doesn't he? It becomes really clear that Vespasian and Jesus had way different intents with their healing and with their ministry and with their mission. So with our final point, uh, the healing community, I'm going to kind of ask us to get off of that magic school bus ride. We're going to take a step out, back out into kind of our contemporary setting, and we're going to kind of work through some of the stuff that we've talked about. And this time I'm steering away from the three markers, and we're going to talk about two markers of a healing community. And the first one I'd like to identify is the right belief. People that are in a healing community have the right belief. And what I mean by that is we, will, we still believe that Jesus is a genuine healer today. Jesus' Jesus's story bears the markers of all the traits that we need in a genuine healer. And as the story continues, as the gospel goes in Mark, Jesus endures a cross. And instead of crying out, puto dus fio, Oh, I think I'm becoming a god. He cries out, Father, forgive them. And instead of having a man talking about the deep irony of claiming to be a god at his deathbed, there's actually a Roman soldier that probably put the spikes in his body at his feet, crying out, this man must be the son of God. And in the darkest hour, of Christ's death, when he's pulled off the cross and put into the tomb, three women show up to grieve his loss. They thought their hope was gone. And they walk up to an empty tomb and find out that he's resurrected. They run away in excitement, fear, and awe. Their hope for healing, salvation, new life has resurrected. And Jesus has become more genuine than they could ever imagine. That's the right belief. A community that is a healing community has that belief. We We point to Jesus. We don't point to the patients. We don't point to ourselves, even though sometimes we do, but really, that's what we strive for, right? I'd like to say that it's not only right belief, but it's right practice. And Jesus actually gives us a glimpse at what these right practices are in the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those excuse me, who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, are hu- who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is a community that is transformed by the story of Jesus. It's a community that has taken serious this, li- this new life, this resurrected life, and deeply, deeply depend on Christ. And that is the praxis end. That is the practical end that follows up right belief, is right practice, 
And Jesus gives us the cheat sheet. And what does this look like, really? I mean, what, what does this look like in context? Because that can be left to abstraction. We could just leave it there and say, well, you know, we live out the Beatitudes and not really know what that means. And to be honest, sometimes I don't know what that means. I really don't. I struggle with it all the time because I have Vespasians. You probably have Vespasians. And we become self-centered. And it's really hard to maybe focus on how to live out being a healing community. And I've listed just kind of a short vision on what I think that this is, what being a healing community is. And I, uh, the mourners lament for the prayers that remain unanswered, for the hopes that are deferred, and for the, heal, and for the unhealed wounds. A healing community will stand beside those with unanswered prayers and that are unhealed. And maybe you've been that person that has stood there unhealed with unanswered prayers. And the bitterness and loneliness of despair is not with you because you're with your community. Blessed are the meek. And the meek submit themselves to the entire church in continuous prayer for healing. An addict might see their gentleness and begin to understand that there is a new world. And there is a new group of people that will not try to manage their sin, but will stand alongside them. As a person with family members that are addicts, this has been really important for, for my family. That is a healing community. The peacemaker will mend broken relationships, will prompt us to work together toward, to heal injustice and to start living out the peace that will come when the, when the kingdom of God finally arrives in its fullness. We're doing that ahead of time. That's what healing community does, and that's what we experience as we're in this. And the persecuted always point towards Jesus. They know the suffering of Christ. And they always point back at the one who suffered for us. This is a healing community. And with all this in mind, I, I, I have just kind of one other meme that I'm going to work up uh, here. And based on that, that illustration, and uh, it kind of comes from Van Gogh's painting, Starry Night. Um, there just about everyone knows this painting. It's beautiful, insanely beautiful. And some of you guys probably know a whole lot about Van Gogh. I, I don't, but I do know one story about him or maybe a legend about him that uh, before he pursued being an artist kind of as a full-time thing, um, he, had, he had pursued ministry. And he went through kind of these episodes of psychosis like some of us may have experienced. And his community didn't quite get behind him. And he left. And one of the scary things about that, about that experience is actually this picture. Um, if you notice, there's kind of a, a church in the middle of town just uh, to the right of the, to the mountain. And if you see the houses around, all the lights are on. And nighttime's a scary time, isn't it? That's when people get robbed. That's when people are cold. That's when they're hungry. And that's usually when they're alone. And the, and the night makes it worse. And, at this, and in this scene at night, the church is the only building with the lights off. Perhaps we can say that that's sarcastically, that that's the nail that photo. But then there's... Sorry. But then there's a church like this that's been uh, healing for Heather and I. Where 
oh man, we've come in with baggage and we've helped alleviate other folks' baggage. And where I feel like we've lived out the belief and the practice that, um, that I kind of outlined earlier. That while Van Gogh's church really did nail it, they did it wrong. I believe City Life is, is doing that. I believe that we are that healing community. And kind of as our exit out, uh, Heather in mind. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I got together a little bit. Uh, we want to thank you, and we want to continue to pray for you guys, uh, that you continue to be a community that's shaped by the gospel, and it's shaped by right belief, and it's, that's well-known for good practice, that always points towards Christ for healing. And while we all deal with our Vespasians and our frustrations. We do it openly and we do it in community and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So uh, thank you, City Life. Thanks, man. Let me just say a prayer. Gracious God, thank you for Ronnie and for blessing us and showing up today to speak to us. Help us. We need so much help to uh, understand um, how to how to even approach and how to enter into um, things like these clear teachings uh, of the Beatitudes that Ronnie ended with. And is so help us as we struggle for the authentic versus the counterfeit um, to keep looking to you and to have the strength uh, to bring our wounds, our brokenness. Uh, to you, the genuine healer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.